Amen. Please be seated. Today, I ask you to turn in your Bibles to John 17. For some time, uh, Joel Thomas has been encouraging me to preach through John 17. For as long as I've known Joel and been here as a pastor, and if you've been here long enough, whether you know it's from John 17 or not, it's the most often quoted chapter in my preaching and teaching. Everybody has their chapter or verse in Scripture that they view as transformational. John 17 is mine. There's no more important chapter in the Bible to me, personally. But what's true for me personally isn't so important that this is an important chapter for the Church of Christ. This is the greatest prayer in the Bible. Now today I want to introduce you to John 17. Then I'll take four weeks to work through the verses that make up John 17. It's really divided into three parts. It's a prayer that Jesus prays. He prays for himself in the first portion. The middle section, he prays for his immediate disciples. But by extension, and then more explicitly in the third section, he prays for those who will believe us through the word of the disciples. So I'll take four sermons to go through the body of these 26 verses. But today I hope to share with you, on a corporate level, because that's where it's most important, But even personally, I hope that you catch a bit of the passion of Christ as he prays this prayer. And I hope that it's not just a prayer that you put among other prayers you know and think of. I would like you to seriously consider how dramatic this prayer is, how important it is for you, for us, for the church of Christ. Here first, the first five verses of John 17 as we begin this introduction to the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. James, uh, James, I've been in James for so long. John 17, 1 and following. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Let us pray. Father, we are moved by the words of the Lord Jesus as he prays to you. Father, I pray that you would give us a new picture, an improved picture of the Lord Jesus, his love for you. Father, your love for him. And because of that love, the love you have for us, the love you have for me. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. God used John Knox to ignite reformation and revival in Scotland. The effects of his work and his writing and his teaching are still felt to this day. As Knox was working for reformation and revival in Scotland, 
Mary, the so-called Queen of the Scots, opposed him at every turn, trying to impose the Roman church's rule over everything that was done. But over time, as Mary opposed Knox again and again, he was fearless with the message of the gospel. She is reputed to have said that she feared the prayers of Knox more than all the assembled armies of Europe. Knox feared no one but God and stands as one of the boldest witnesses for Christ since the apostles. I say this to mention that Knox credits the reading of John 17 with his becoming a Christian. He read it continuously through his life and most importantly, in his last days of in agonizing pain and illness, he had it read to him perpetually, it seemed, by those who were around him. In fact, the last, among the last words he spoke, very, very shortly before he lost consciousness, he bid his wife to read John 17 again, and he said, Go read where I cast my first anchor. I agree with Arthur Pink's assessment of John 17. He said in John 17, The veil is drawn aside, and we are admitted with our great high priest into the holiest of all. Here we approach the secret place of the tabernacle of the Most High. Therefore, it behooves us to put off our shoes from our feet, listening with humble, reverent, and prepared hearts, for the place whereon we now stand is indeed holy ground. And you can picture the Old Testament saint who could only look at the tabernacle from afar, could never go into it, and even the priests who could go into it had to cleanse themselves over and over and be afraid for their life when they went into the Holy of Holies. Well, now in Christ we can enter in. In reading John 17 is something like us being able to go into the Holy of Holies and see the secret counsels of God, not just out there as facts, but prayed for us. John 17 is among the most powerful chapters in all the Bible. I think it's my favorite chapter in all of Scripture. Now, I want to walk through, in an introductory way, Prayers of the Bible. I'm making this statement. I think it's the greatest prayer of the Bible. Some might object with such a statement, and I understand that perhaps we shouldn't put rankings on such things. But let's look at some of the other prayers. We'll find there to be many great ones as we consider the larger context of John 17. First, the whole Bible itself. If you just walk through it, there are some phenomenal prayers. Prayers that God works in his people, meaning he sets up circumstances that force his people to pray. And that's what we just studied in James. You know, through hardships, through cheerful times, and through sicknesses, it's all meant that we would pray in those times. And, and evidence of this is how he evokes prayer. Uh, he brings prayer from his people. We see it throughout the scripture. There are many great, great prayers in the Bible. Think of Abraham back when Sodom was about to be destroyed. Abraham knew what the judgment of God would be, but Abraham goes before God and pleads for the righteous that may be living there. What if there's 50 people, he says to God? I mean, what a prayer when you think of this. He, he knows the wickedness of Sodom, but he also knows there's some believers, and he says, what if there's 50 righteous, God, would you spare them then? Listen to what he says in Genesis 18. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of the earth do what is just? What an intercession on the part of Abraham. He says later in the same chapter, praying, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but once, 
Suppose there are ten found there. God said, for the sake of ten, I will not. Of course, there were not ten, and he delivered out from that place those who were. But what a prayer. Abraham going before God in the face of such wickedness for his love, his love for those people there. Moses praying for the Israelites among one of the greatest prayers. Next to this 32. After the most miraculous delivery in history through the Red Sea, now they're at Mount Sinai. They see the hand of God redeem them from the most powerful nation in the world. What's their response? Well, when Moses is meeting with God, they get everyone's earrings and rings and gold cups and whatever they have. They melt it down, turn it into a cow, and they worship it. So God burns with anger. Seemingly ready to punish. And Moses intercedes for the people with a great prayer. Next to this 32. O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with the mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent he did bring them out? So he appeals to the justice of God by saying, don't let the pagans who hate you see you destroy us. Your glory won't be best served that way. So he prays for the glory of God. God moves the situation, puts them into this pressure, and he is praying. And he is asking God to not let his glory be tarnished. That's what the prayer is for. That's a great prayer. More personally, what about Hannah? Hannah had her womb closed. It says literally her womb was closed by the Lord. She could not have a child. She pleased with God that if she would be given a son, that she would dedicate that son to the service of the Lord in his tabernacle. God answers and gives her Samuel. She responds by indeed giving Samuel to the service of the Lord. He becomes a prophet as well as a priest. He even has a, a sense of kingship as he's the first one to appoint the king in Israel. And listen to what she says, this prayer of Hannah. My heart exalts in the Lord. My strength is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Great prayer that Hannah prays. Many prayers of David that you can think of. He wrote many of the Psalms that are prayers. But there are two I just want to remind you of. One that we can all relate with so closely. And we pray a portion of a portion of the prayers that we pray here. Caught guilty and exposed by a sin. He says, Lord, create in me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit in me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Great prayer of David. What about calling the people to build the temple? David wouldn't get to see it. He was a man of war. But the people give sacrificially all the stuff's in place and ready. His son Solomon is ready to, to take the baton and build the temple. And he prays before he dies. A great prayer. First Chronicles 29. Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord. And you are exalted as the head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. A great prayer by King David. Another king, Hezekiah, utters 
some incredible words in prayer as well as he faces the army of Assyria and Sennacherib, one of the most arrogant, pompous of all the Assyrian leaders. He actually, when he gets close to where he's going to attack the Israelites, uh, he sends word through the messengers mocking Yahweh. I mean, the other pagan kings didn't believe in God, but they were usually more careful than that. Sennacherib mocks God. Hezekiah knows they can't take Assyria. There's 185,000 Assyrians coming in on them. And so Hezekiah prays these words in Second Kings 19. Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone. All the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste to the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, O Lord, O God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, our God alone. He prays for the preservation and promotion of the glory of God and preserving them. And God sends an angel and 185,000 soldiers are killed without one sword being drawn. Daniel, during the time of the exile, the Israelites are taken by the Persians. And here is Daniel looking at the end of the 70 years of, of punishment that they had been enduring, looking forward to God fulfilling their restoring to the land. And he prays a great prayer in Daniel 7, uh, 9, verse 17. Now, therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas of mer- for mercy. For your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. A great prayer is one that is evoked by God, but it asks for the glory of God. And the glory of God works for his people. This is what we see as a common thread through all these great prayers of the Bible. How about Nehemiah? You know, Ezra goes back. Uh, people start going back by a decree. They're going to start rebuilding the walls and the temple. But, but project after project fails. And it's not being done. And there's great uh, lament among the Israelites. That they're more concerned with, with living their lives and doing what God sent them back to do, to build the walls and the temple, to be a presence, a witness to the world. And they're not doing it. And Nehemiah is called by God. So Nehemiah, who is clearly a project manager kind of guy, goes back there and what he sees makes him weak when he sees the walls in ruin and nothing, no real progress has been made. Such a personality might get right to work, signing committees and administrating all the details, but Nehemiah recognizes this job can't be done, except for if he goes for God to, before God first. Nehemiah 1, as soon as I heard these words, Nehemiah said, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which you have, which have sinned against you. Even I in my house 
have sinned, Nehemiah says. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and to do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They're your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand, O Lord. Let your ear be attentive to the prayers of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear in your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy. What a great prayer for any leader to pray. We jump over to the New Testament. Paul prays throughout the letters he writes. But Ephesians captures the sentiment of the apostle as he prays great prayers. Paul says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation and of the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? This is the prayer of Paul for you. Later in the same book, he busts out with another prayer. Ephesians 3, 14 and following. For this reason I bow my knees, knees before the Father, for whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Tough to beat that prayer. What makes these great prayers? God evokes these prayers by moving circumstances that prompt prayer. That's what our God does. But each of these prayers is a focus on the preservation and the advancement of God's glory. There are different details, but ultimately the preservation, the advancement, or the promotion of God's glory is at the heart of these prayers. That's what makes them great. You know, when you think of the Lord Jesus, there are many prayers that he prays. The New Testament records many times when he prayed. But honestly, the content of those prayers is very few. In, in I'm not going to speak of the Lord's prayer in this sense, because Jesus prayed that prayer to teach us how to pray. He wasn't praying to have his debts forgiven. It was for us to pray. So removing that content, there are very few times where we get the full content of what Jesus prayed. Yet we see him praying all the time. In fact, there are four instances where we see monumental things happen after Jesus prays. Yet we're not given the content. Right at his baptism in Luke 3. When Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my blessed son. With you, I am well pleased. Now, my theory as to why the content of this prayer is not given is because it would become an idol to the people of God later, that that would somehow open heaven and the same thing would happen. We don't know the content, but when he prayed, the Trinity in its only time in history comes together on earth. The voice of God speaking, the Spirit descending, and Jesus there. Monumental prayer. Yet we don't even have the words. 
the beginning of his earthly public ministry, after a very, and a very eventful day, he's baptized, the meeting of the Trinity on earth, the calling of the disciples, healing a demon-possessed man. Then he stops to pray. It says in Mark 1, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he play, prayed. The beginning of his earthly ministry started, his public ministry, that is, with prayer. Yet the content's not even there for us. Just before he selected the twelve, listen to what Jesus did. You, you, know, you might think, because it was appointed, he even reveals this in John 17, who would be his disciples. Yet Jesus prays to God, and listen how he prays. Luke 6:12. just before he selects the twelve. In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose, them, chose from them twelve who he named apostles. That's the preparation, prayer that he put in. No content given, we just know the profundity of this prayer that appoints the apostles whose blood the church would be built. At his transfiguration, that mysterious transforming of himself, showing that he is God, he took Peter and John and James, recorded in Luke 9, to the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. These are all profound, great prayers, but we don't have the content for them. I can't wait to hear the content of them in heaven. But we don't have it. We just know they're powerful. They were great. Then there's some great prayers that we do have the words for. They're short, though. He's standing before Lazarus' tomb. He's been dead four days. The decay process is well advanced, and he says to have the rock moved away. The stone is removed. Jesus lifts his eyes. And listen to what he says in this prayer. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. He says explicitly he is praying these words so that those here, those around here, who he is asking to raise Lazarus. He's not a magic worker. He is one submissive to God, the only one who could give life. And he wants people to know that. He wants, because of a situation that God had worked, the death of Lazarus, to show the glory of God, and he prays just for that, that everyone would see and praise God for what's about to happen. The longest prayer of Jesus that we have is the one we'll begin to study in John 17. He prays it, after this long discourse in the upper room, comforting the people that he has just called his disciples, because he's telling them he's going to leave, he washes their feet, they celebrate the Passover, and he tells them he's going to have to leave. So they've got to be down. They've got to be wondering what this means for them. They've been spending all this time with him. They've given their life to him for the last three years. Now he's saying he's going to leave? So he prays in John 17 to bring comfort. The words of John 17 the mold of these great prayers, but it also is meant to bring us great comfort. We'll see that in a moment. We know the prayer that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. We're given portions of it. Three different times as he prays and then goes and checks his sleeping disciples, he goes back and prays more. Three times he utters similar words. In Matthew 26, And going a little farther, he fell on his face, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but you will. 
Then again for the second time in verse 42 of Matthew 26, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And he prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. That's all the content we're given, but it's profound content. He prays with regard to taking the cup of God's wrath and drinking it himself, meaning the mission of the Father to give unto the Son to drink of the cup. At his death, he utters words. On the cross, the sun's light failed, the curtain veil in the temple tore in two, and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit your spirit. Wrapping up all the history of redemption into one statement, into your hands I commit my spirit. Great prayer. What makes these prayers great? God evokes these prayers by moving circumstances that prompt prayer. I just want to pause before we go further and and bid you, whatever circumstance you're in right now, I promise you that God is moving it so that you will seek Him. Whether it's in hardship, whether it's in cheerfulness, or whether it's in physical sickness or ailment, He wants you. He invites you to Himself through Christ. What are the circumstances that evoke the prayer of John 17 that we will study? In chapter 11 of John, Lazarus is raised, as I had mentioned. Immediately after Lazarus is raised, the Jews see fit to kill Jesus. That's the last thing they'll let him do that will make people follow him. So already in John 12, they are trying to find a way to kill him. So in John, unlike the other Gospels, uh, half of it is devoted to his passion, his suffering and death on the cross for us. Starting in chapter 12 of John all the way to 21 at the end, we have the story of Jesus going through terrible shame and suffering for us. Half of John, the gospel written that we might believe. And so starting in chapter 14, he goes to the upper room with his disciples and he prepares them for his impending death and what will come after. Look what it says. The focus of this prayer of John, of uh, Jesus John 17, look at verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus' prayer in John 17 may well be considered the greatest of all prayers in the Bible. I'm not the only one who says that. The great commentator, Matthew Henry, put it this way, the most remarkable prayer followed the most full and consoling discourse ever uttered on earth. Philip Melanchthon, the great assistant and brother to Martin Luther, said, there is no voice which has ever been heard, either in heaven or in earth, more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered by the Son of God himself. First of all, this passage that we will study together is rich with biblical themes. The glory of God the Father. The glory of God the Son. The glory of the triune God. The kingship of Christ. The humiliation of Jesus for us. The exaltation of Jesus for us. The intercession of Christ on our behalf. The eternality of Christ himself. Christ the prophet. Christ the priest. The mediator. The Lamb of God. God the covenant keeper, the promise keeper, divine election, Christ's plan for evangelism, 
the sanctifying power of the word of God, the preservation of the saints, the particular nature of redemption and the irresistible grace. Just to name a few. One chapter. What I love most about John 17, which you will hear as we study these verses together, is that it reveals why I am secure, why you are secure. It reveals the love between the Father and the Son. It says in verse 1, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. See the love between the Father and the Son. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, the Father given the Son, authority of over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So the Father gives to the Son people for eternal life, and the Son receives them. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Through Christ they'll know God because God has given him to the Son. Down at verse 25, the Father's love for the Son, the Son's for the Father, a righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. 17, verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. You see, Christ appeals to God the Father for us on the basis of his merit because God loves him. Christ, if you will, leverages the Father's love for him on our behalf. Christ relates with God in terms of their eternal love relationship. There is a love between the Father and the Son that none of us fully understand in human terms. We can begin to to gather a touch of it, but it's even more profound than how much you love your own son or your own daughter. We learn in this prayer that Christ's passion for us is because of his love for his Father and his acceptance of what the Father has given him to do. We learn in this prayer that God's love for us is based on his love for his Son, to whom we have been united by faith. We are secure, my brothers and sisters, not because God loves us in some arbitrary, haphazard, sloppy, loose way. We are secure not because God has noted something meritorious or attractive about you or me. We are secure now and for eternity because of God's unchanging love for his Son, who saved us perfectly on the cross. He cannot turn me away because I'm united to his Son. He loves his Son so much that I have my security in him. That's why you're secure, not because of you, but because of the Father's love for the Son, and the Father's giving you to the Son, and the Son keeping you. In giving you back to the Father, the Father will never say no to that. So no matter how you feel right now, or will feel tomorrow or the next day, it has nothing to do with the love of the Father for the Son and your acceptance before the Father. That's why John 17 is so important. It means everything. It means eternity to us. The reason why we lack security is because we think it's based on us, when in fact it's based on a love greater than any of us can possibly fathom in a moment. We're secure now. And for eternity, because God so loves the Son, and the Son so loves the Father, and the Son so loved me because the Father gave me to Him. And He paid for all my sins and for all of your sins. Now we're in union with Christ. He will never turn away His Son. The prayer of John 17 continues to be effective. The other prayers were powerful, they teach us much. But this prayer keeps going on in its effect. In a sense, it answers what Hebrews speaks of. 
Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, He, Christ, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. Then he says, the author of Hebrews in 7.25, Since He, Christ, always lives to make intercession for them, us. Because we are in Christ, Christ, right now, this moment, where our thoughts are adrift or wherever they may be, is making intercession for us. That's what it says in Hebrews, always. Well, I would submit that that intercession looks something very much like what is said in John 17. You know, all the other prayers of Christ were largely Jesus dealing with people on behalf of the Father. But here in John 17, Jesus deals with the Father on behalf of the people given to him, based on his merit, because he can. This prayer is a standing monument of Christ's affection for the sheep for whom he died. Look at this prayer of intercession prayed for you in closing. Verse 1, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh. This is the intercessory words of Jesus for us, to give eternal life to all whom you have given. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Down in verse 6, Jesus says to the Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. He goes on to the Father in verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Down to verse 10, he says in chapter 17, praying again to the Father, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Down to verse 17, interceding for us, he says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And he closes the prayer of intercession by saying, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Brothers and sisters, I close this introductory message with these words from Bishop J.C. Ryle. The chapter we have now begun is the most remarkable in the Bible. It stands alone, and there is nothing like it. Let us pray. Father, I pray that I would not get in the way of your word these next four weeks. In Jesus' name, amen. My brothers and sisters,